Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and I guess Jim will be joining us momentarily. In any event, uh, just a quick public announcement. Uh, tomorrow is Election Day, primary day here in Michigan, and it's interesting that there are uh, more, shall we say, contested primary races than usual. So uh, get out and vote. Uh, a lot of races, uh, both in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. And, uh, of course, those pesky judges are on the ballot. One never knows who to vote for when it comes to the judges. It's hard to get a uh, objective uh, breakdown of uh, their credentials. Obviously, most of them are credentialed. Indeed. Personally, I usually go for the uh, non-Republican females. Yeah, there As you judges, go. judges, they uh, tend to be good listeners. Tend to be good listeners and maybe, uh, well, this may seem sexist, but maybe they have a, a, a little warmer touch for the the average soul. And maybe that's a good segue uh, to briefly talk about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, of course, uh, he passed away. and uh, you, you might have thought he'd been dead for years because really, since the Cold War ended, he ceased being useful at all to the... Uh, intellectual apparatuses of the West. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a fascinating writer uh, in a lot of ways. Um, hard to pigeonhole, but uh, I, the, the coverage last night on the BBC I thought was, was pretty good. I listened to several hours of it because they had different segments analyzing his significance as uh, both literary and political. And uh, just on a personal note, you know, I read one day in the life of Ivan uh, Denisovich, uh and that's probably botching the Russian there, but uh, quite Close. quite early in uh, my uh, youth. Uh, and it had a profound effect on me. Um, one of the first important political books I ever read was Black Like Me, which was about a, a white person who uh, dressed up as an African-American and experienced the uh, Jim Crow and uh, prejudice down south. He was sort of an itinerant person, and I read that in elementary school, and that had a profound effect on my political consciousness. But uh, I think that the Gulag Archipelago, um, which is obviously his most important work in many ways, is definitely uh, relevant to today's uh, global war on terror. And without getting into uh, too elaborate, I... I found my copy of the book and the opening chapter uh, after some brief uh, prefatorial uh, comments is entitled Arrest and uh, it's interesting the book shows uh, Solzhenitsyn as a young army uh, captain or whatever he was and then his shaved head and then what he looked like um, mm. after eight years in the gulag and he aged considerably. <laughs> um, and he looked like a Russian novelist. And I, I think that it's fair to say that, uh, irrespective of his uh, later decline, um, in terms of literary output and significance, he probably was the most important Russian novelist of the 20th century. And certainly um, had a quasi-Tolstoyan sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it, pan, 
pan-Russian perspective on things. He was no by, by no means a liberal. No, not at a all. A traditionalist. Um, and uh, I think that he resembles Tolstoy in some ways, although Tolstoy was certainly more uh, of an agrarian um, realist or even idealist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting that over the weekend I've been reading an American uh, poet, novelist, essayist named Wendell Berry, hmm. who is uh, an English teacher for many years down at the University of Kentucky, but he is one of these... Uh, a sort of farmer. Yeah, agrarian realist that talks a lot about the uh, alienation of modern man uh, from the economic perspective and his uh, sort of estrangement from the land and the fact that We've become cogs in this sort of bizarre economic production megalomania that's all about what are the latest growth GNP statistics, mm -hmm. how much can we consume, and it's about consumerism. And uh, it was just fascinating to be reading him just in, in the context of the fact that Solzhenitsyn passed away, and I'd obviously sort of forgotten about Solzhenitsyn yeah. <laughs> for these many years. But I think that the arrest is uh, is an interesting perspective, and of course, this is a uh, monumental work uh, about the. Uh, it's anti-Stalinist, to say the least, not anti-communist, and I think that's one of the confusions that we in the West uh, uh, don't quite understand. Because uh, at one point, uh, and I only read a couple of chapters of this last night while I was listening to BBC. But at one point he notes that uh, at a certain point every political organization was targeted by Stalin, um, including the original Bolsheviks. Hmm. That everybody, no surprise, yeah. everybody was suspect. And that these uh, slave camps and death camps and the elimination of all political uh, opposition was uh, what Stalin was all about. It had nothing to do with some utopian communism. At a certain point, or, it was Ivan the Terrible. Oh, yeah, it was a, a complete madman. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Stalin was not a socialist. He was not even, strictly speaking, a Marxist. He was an autocratic madman. Yeah, and it was. it's the surveillance. It's the creation of this secret police that spies into everything and everybody and there's a whiff of the you know the first couple of chapters in which Solzhenitsyn is is presenting this this society that unfortunately is beginning to resemble the United States of America the fact that uh, emails and all computer uh, um, correspondence is apparently monitored by the NSA at, at a certain point except of course when they're trying to find Karl Rove's emails um, those seem to have disappeared or be unavailable for the time being. And it's this spirit of uh, the fact that anybody can turn you in. He goes into the details of how many people are arrested. Um, one guy gets into a cab, and he's driven straight to Lubyanka. Um, just a, a fascinating opening chapter, arrest. And uh, I think that it is uh, worthwhile to reread the Gulag Archipelago at this point because the United States, as Gulag Archipelago, while in no way, shape, or form, resembles the Soviet Union's. Um, we do have a string of them now. We have a string of them, and they're global. And rather than cold <laughs> winter, tropical. 
they tend to be heat zones. And when you begin looking at the statistics of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, uh, it, there's universal global outrage about the fact that so few have ever been charged and so few apparently even deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a gulag of its of its own making in which the United States uh, government is trying to claim to its people that it's uh, keeping us safe from the evildoers. Well, the mad obsession to defeat the imagined strengths of an adversary, whether these are realistic adversaries or purely imaginary in and of themselves, uh, there's a tendency to become like the enemy that you seek to crush, kill, and destroy. And that is just another evidence in, uh, of the way in which the democratic societies of the West became more uh, like surveillance states mm-hmm. um, in this deranged obsession with the uh, fear of expansion of communism, the so-called domino theory, um, which, of course, was disproven uh, on a number of different occasions. Um, another aspect of Solzhenitsyn, too, is I think he stands as a good example of the way in which the Soviet regime uh, destroyed the brilliant legacy of Russian literature in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most highly developed literary forms, the novels that came out of Russia in the 19th century, uh, are some of the finest ever written in any language. Sure. And uh, the repression of the f- freedom of uh, authors, the, you know, fact that what might Solzhenitsyn have written about if he hadn't had to write about the gulags? Um, you know, it, it's a good and lasting testimony that he gives us in these books, but a man of his talents might have chosen to write about different things had his life unfolded uh, in you know, a society that wasn't so repressive to art. Well, I even seem to recall that Dostoevsky was briefly a, quote, political yes. prisoner. Yeah. Um, this is forgotten, it seems. Um, but Almost he, executed by almost the Tsar's forces. Yeah. yeah, because he was a peripherally connected to uh, a so-called anti-Tsarist plot, and this yeah. seems to be a common uh, concept of the Russian empire, so to speak. And... Uh, I think that Solzhenitsyn's uh, early works are obviously uh, significant in in terms of exposing this this bizarre um, paranoia, and I you know it's just this fascinating description of his arrest where he says, "That's all there is to it. You are arrested, and you'll find nothing better to respond with than the lamentable bleat, me what for." That's what arrest is. It's a blinding flash and a blow which shifts the present instantly into the past and the impossible into the omnipotent actuality. That's all. And neither for the first hour nor the first day will you uh, be able to grasp anything else except that in your desperation, the fake circus moon will blink at you. It's a mistake. They'll set things right. And um, he goes on to describe the efficiency of the uh, GPU slash NVK uh, and their apparatus in which and, and the quotas that they actually one of the few truly efficient aspects of Stalin's regime. Yeah, and it's important to remember that this, the Soviet records on 
how many people died in these slave camps and prisons uh, are the accurate uh, numbers. Don't believe uh, made-up uh, numbers from intellectuals from uh, some of the Yale University press publications that I think exaggerate uh, the numbers considerably, but the numbers are staggering. And, of course, um, there's some evidence, for instance, that the purges in 1937 were actually a fairly sophisticated German uh, intelligence operation duping Stalin, in which he actually executed and arrested a third. Well, he intellectually decapitated of, uh, his armed forces. Yeah, of the, of the officer corps. Right. And um, got rid of... Uh, of course, the original Bolsheviks, uh, many of them were arrested and executed, like Bukharin and whatnot. Um, and, of course, Trotsky himself was eventually assassinated by a uh, apparatchik of Stalin's uh, security police. And, of course, the security polices themselves were always uh, eventually executed after they'd done... Uh, Dangerous work! <laughs> ...sufficient <laughs> mass murder on behalf of uh, the paranoid Joseph Stalin. Um, so, um, any more observations or comments? Uh, no, I think we'll, uh, see some resurgence of interest in his writings. Uh, maybe some professors will offer seminars in, uh, Dostoevsky, uh, excuse me, Solzhenitsyn. Dostoevsky, of course, continues to be studied. Um, but I would just quickly mention that, uh, Andrei Platonov, Daniel Karms, and, uh, Vladimir Voinovich are also great, oh, Yorgi Vladimov, great 20th century Russian writers uh, who deserve broader attention than they got. Their work simply wasn't that political. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I loved the, hearing uh, Nixon's uh, being queried at a press conference last night on the BBC about Solzhenitsyn, uh, and some questioner was asking him uh, how it would affect detente. Mm -hmm. um, and I should have wrote down the exact answer because it was classic... <laughs> Well, uh, Nixonian maneuvering. Nixonian maneuvering. I am familiar with the man's work. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, but I think that there's um, an interesting parallel to the death of Solzhenitsyn and this anthrax um, yeah. investigation, uh, which we can briefly talk about. Um, it'll be fascinating to uh, monitor uh, how the government responds over the next couple of days regarding the anthrax uh, case, so to speak, because this is one of those glaring examples of um, John Ashcroft, Inspector Clouseau at work. <laughs> I mean, for gosh sakes, how many suspects possibly could there have been? Yeah. And, you know, they say that eventually it was the DNA of the anthrax itself. That was instantly traceable yeah. from the get-go. Well, they yeah, they knew about it long, long ago. Um, and the whole case... One wonders if this guy was sort of given the opportunity to, to kill himself to prevent the embarrassment that a trial yeah. would likely have uh, unfolded. And where is the ever-reliable J. Edgar Hoover that will <clears throat> emerge in, in the next couple of days to, to, to indicate that this is the, the lone gunman? Um, right. The work of a lone nut. And, of course, we've already heard leaked information that he was mentally unstable <laughs> and whatnot. Of course, that begs the question, <laughs> why is he continuing to work at Fort Detrick? Um, which, of course, uh, we've talked down here on Gray Matters over the many years about Fort Detrick, uh, because, uh, interestingly, Robert Gallo, uh, the official co-discoverer of the HIV-AIDS mm. virus, quote-unquote, uh, 
worked on transmissible cancer mm -hmm. at Fort Detrick in the 1970s. Uh, fascinating stuff, but uh, getting back to the anthrax case, I mean, this it, this just boggles the, the, the mind. Uh, and, of course, I, I'm convinced somehow that there was some sort of mistake made. I think that there was going to be an arrest of this guy probably maybe on the eve of the Republican convention. Spectacular. We found the anthrax right. killer. We're making you safe and blah, blah, blah. But somehow, um, this reporter for the Los Angeles Times found out about this, the fact that he was eminently about to be arrested and recently committed suicide. Uh, of course, the case is said to be circumstantial, but um, it's, it's interesting to examine the chronology of the anthrax case itself and the consequences of it. I mean, let's face facts here. Tom Daschle, who was majority leader, and Patrick Leahy, who was uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, because it's important to remember there's a kind of a confusing chronology regarding the control of Congress. When Bush was elected, quote, or selected by the Supreme Court to become president, the Senate was technically tied, mm -hmm. uh, and this allowed the Republicans to actually form the first majority, uh, with Dick Cheney supposedly breaking the tie. Jim Jeffords, however, changed parties five months into the Bush administration because he was given short shrift on a variety of issues, and he switched to becoming an independent. So that shifted the balance of power to the Democrats. Right. Now, uh, it's fascinating to uh, discover, of course, that Daschle and Leahy were, of course, two of the most important Democrats in the Senate, and that had their death occurred the Senate would have switched back to the Republicans um, by virtue of the fact that governors in those states would appoint... Replacements. Yeah. Replacements. Uh, that in and of itself has not been discussed. Um, but the, the notion, for instance, and it was early on that the government knew some of the important aspects of this case. I mean, it's just fascinating to find out, for instance, in a March 18th, uh, 2002 edition of The Nation, that the FBI... Justice Department, uh, in control of uh, John Ashcroft, did not turn over this anthrax to the CDC. <laughs> Instead, they had the anthrax moved to Fort Detrick to be tested, <laughs> presumably by the very perpetrators of this crime. He did work with the FBI in the early days of the investigation. Yeah, but the CDC apparently was sort of left out of the loop uh, probably a bureaucracy that the Republican government didn't uh, administration didn't control that efficiently uh, because they're a different uh, bureaucracy. I think, um, uh, what's the name, fellow's name? Uh, Fauci, I think he was in charge of the CDC. Um, Anthony Fauci, um, who's featured prominently, by the way, when AIDS is discussed publicly in the media. So it's very bizarre that early on they knew that this Ames quote-unquote strain um, was not available. And in a fascinating article in the December 17th, 2001 edition of the Nation ma uh, magazine, Michael Massing goes into the 
startling uh, revelations regarding the, quote, storyline that was being circulated by um, the media, some of the media, and the administration regarding the, um, the quote, threat. Um, ma Massing, of course, uh, has been a press, sort of a nominally left-wing press critic who writes frequently in the Columbia Journalism Review and the New York Review of Books. But he goes into the actual chronology of how the um, initial aspects of the case were linked to Iraq by the New York Times. And, of course, the ever-reliable Judith Miller wrote these articles. Uh, we now know that she was getting her, her quote, sources, unquote, were high-ranking officials in the Bush administration, including Scooter Lebby and... Um, Ahmad Kalabi, and she, of course, had this Iraq bioterror agenda, and that Iraq was frequently mentioned uh, in the early uh, days of the of the breaking story mm -hmm. regarding this letter. Um, th this of all, of course, was in connection with the fact that they had published a book uh, earlier that fall called "Germs: Biological Weapons in the America's America's Secret War." which, uh, needless to say, goes into the, quote, history of bioweapons, including the United States' largely secret experiments during and after World War II and the former Soviet Union's massive buildup after signing a ban on such weapons in 1972 and Saddam Hussein's uh, push to develop a smorgasbord of deadly pathogens in Iraq. Drawing on this research, the trio... and. Uh, Judith Miller had some uh, co-authors uh, co on this book, um, Stephen Engelberg and, Engelberg and William Broad, drawing on this uh, research. The trio has contributed some sharp stories about the lax security in Russia's remaining labs and about America's lack of preparedness for dealing with a biological attack. And needless to say, the money pours in. Uh, I think that the New York Times concluded that $50 billion has been spent on uh, protecting America from anthrax. <laughs> and, you know, as if this didn't have enough bizarre elements in it, uh, from an article uh, by Dmitry Sevastopolo in uh, Financial Times about this matter, uh, the death of uh, Bruce Ivins, the microbiologist who worked on these anthrax vaccines, uh, was just the latest twist in the investigation. Earlier this year, the government reached a $5.8 million settlement with Stephen Hatfield, a former government scientist, publicly identified as a suspect, even though the government had no evidence. So the entire thing either looks like a completely bungled operation mm -hmm. or a very carefully calculated and schemed out plan of operations here. Yeah. Um, Maybe Mr. Hatfield just wasn't a Bush loyalist. Who knows? But who knows about this Bruce Ivins character? Uh, he has been reportedly, he was in therapy, quote-unquote, with, quote, homicidal tendencies. And, and yet he's got this high security clearance. Yeah, a desire. And I thought, well, he's perfectly qualified to work in the biological weapons factory of the United States government. Gee, has anybody out there ever seen 12 monkeys? <laughs> It's uh, unbelievable. And the silence over this is deafening. I think that this was going to be a dumped story on this weekend, but mm -hmm. the L.A. Times jumped the gun. Somehow this reporter found out through the Justice Department about this Bruce Ivins character, and he reported this 
in Friday's papers. So needless to say, there was a little bit of coverage on Friday. But what fascinated me about the paucity of the coverage was that only Keith Oberman had any interest in the actual sort of arcane... Let's go back a few years. Labyrinths. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. And, and I'm obviously not going to drop the ball on this. We're going to talk more about the chronology that's, that's complicated but fascinating. Um, because the Tom Daschle letter, by the way, was uh, considered particularly deadly. And needless to say, the victims in this whole case were postal workers. Right. And the, the, the um, Senate was evacuated for two months or something. While well, they it added to a total it. atmosphere of, of utter panic throughout yeah. the country. I mean, there were all sorts of articles about evacuation plans. Every city should have an evacuation plan. So suddenly we go from the attacks of 9-11 and, you know, two specific you know, architectural features being attacked to every city is potentially about to be attacked and evacuated. Yeah, and and Michael Massing in his chronology, because uh, he writes about this uh, several months after the anthrax uh, business, notes that um, while the attack occurred in the early parts uh, of October, I believe the official date that Daschle got the letter was, the, or maybe it was Brokaw got it on the 12th, by the 17th, the New York Times um, revealed, quote, that the anthrax mailed to the office of Daschle was, quote, highly refined. Signs of an escalating threat ran the headline atop a front-page analysis by Engelbird and Miller. According to them, the high quality of the anthrax suggested to officials that somewhere someone has access to the sort of germ weapons capable of inflicting mass, casu- mass casualties. In fact, they were right. It just happened to be the United States. An adversary armed with anthrax in this form, and this is quoting from the article, would have a host of possible targets for mass terrorism, including a city or large office building, they wrote. Citing a former scientist, the article stated that the discovery of such anthrax, quote, cast serious doubt on the theory advanced by some investigators that the germ attacks were the work of a lone amateur with a smattering of knowledge about biology. The article also named three states that have been developing anthrax as a weapon, the United States, the Soviet Union, and Iraq. The same three that the book Germs focuses on. Thus, on October 19th, William Broad and David Johnson reported that investigators suspected that the anthrax letters were, quote, related to the September 11th attacks and that they were investigating the possibility that al-Qaeda confederates of the hijackers are behind the identities. And needless to say, because the letters were postmarked at Trenton, a regional mail processing facility, they noted that some of the hijackers lived in New Jersey. (laughs) Needless to say, Trenton's on the other side of the state. It's actually near Philly. I checked my little atlas. You can drive from Frederick, Maryland to get to this region of New Jersey, in about two and a half hours on the interstate, um, and, um, well, presumably Bruce Ivins did this. But I think we need to know more about uh, Bruce Ivins, how he maintained the security uh, clearance, and why, if, uh, I mean, how many people in the United States could make an anthrax letter of this quality and caliber? It's staggering to contemplate. There can't be that many suspects. 
It's um, you'd think you'd be starting with a with a very limited pool, and that it'd be easy to work through that pool in in no time. <clears throat> but uh, the unsolved mysteries of the Bush administration will probably take, in all reality, decades, right, to. Uh, Reveal their mysteries. And, of course, it was this early framing of the story that had this purported link to al-Qaeda and biological weaponry. We, we heard endless stories about mm-hmm. how bin Laden in, in the middle of Afghanistan was working on anthrax experiments, which I think bin Laden is capable of many things, but sophisticated anthrax experiments in the middle of Afghanistan where (laughs) 70% of the uh, inhabitants don't even have running water seems highly unlikely. Uh, Also, given bin Laden's ascetic lifestyle, uh, this is preposterous. Uh, Needless to say, a couple of weeks later, the Washington Post began reporting a different um, scenario, the more accurate scenario. Um, Of course, this story was broke by Bob Woodward, He wrote that the FBI and CIA suspect U.S. extremists in the anthrax cases. This was reported on the front page of uh, the the Post on the 28th of October, according to Woodward and Dan Egan. Excellent name there. Officials uh, had come to believe that the anthrax attacks were, quote, the likely work of one or more extremists in the United States who are probably not connected to Osama bin Laden's terrorist organization. Obviously. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the uh, ability of the Bush administration to keep us safe. Uh, a mantra that we've heard repeatedly by John McCain, by the way, over this, this there haven't been any terrorist attacks since 9 11. Uh, well, what was the anthrax attack uh, <laughs> after 9 11? One wonders about uh, Bruce Ivins and his uh, homicidal uh, mind uh, working in the lowly bowels of Fort Detrick, yeah. along, if, alongside with uh, Robert Gallo. And if you haven't seen 12 Monkeys, it's a strongly recommended film, uh, Terry Gilliam vehicle, uh, yeah. about a potentially apocalyptic dispersal of highly contagious toxins. Speaking of highly contagious toxins, the Olympics will finally get underway this week, and we'll see how badly the athletes suffer from the pollution. Uh, there's been so much hype about this. I've completely lost interest. So. Well, I'm going to tune into the CBC because the uh, CBC has much better Olympic coverage than... Uh, NBC will give you. That's true. That is true. And uh, needless to say, the fact that, that uh, the Chinese government r- restricted traffic into Beijing a month ago has led to some of the, quote, demand destruction, and a new phrase being used to describe the uh, slight down turn in oil consumption globally. And therefore the price in uh, Has come per barrel. down slightly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it's back to where it was before the saber-rattling between Israel and Iran began uh, several weeks ago. Still exceedingly high. Well, Yazoo City Calling is next. Uh, stay tuned for that program and Morgan tonight. Okay. Uh, you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and thanks to Alex for engineering this evening. Do stay tuned with Yazoo City Calling. Thing from Jackson about a cop on a Segway pursuing a. Oh, not a. 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 Not